Four. Speaker today is Peter Fritchie from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Got his BA at Penn, his PhD in record time from Berkeley. And in 1987, he went to Illinois, uh, where he's been ever since, rising through the ranks, assistant, associate, full professor, and chair of department. He's coming to the end of his five-year stint. In, in spite of that, he has produced eight books, of which the highlights are A Nation of Flyers, which is related to his topic for today, Germans into Nazis, translated into German and Spanish, and this is the latest one. Just come out, hot off the press. Thank you again, Peter, for giving me a copy. Stranded in the past, modern time and the melancholy of history. You may have noticed that whereas normally I have a resume, which I should earnestly consult, this time I didn't. And that's because Peter and I go back a long time. We've 18 years this month since we first met, and we spent seven happy years as colleagues at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I'd particularly like to welcome to the, back to the Mershon Center John Lynn another veteran of Illinois with whom, again, I was a happy colleague for seven years between 1986 and 1993. But you didn't come to hear my sad story, my life and hard times. You came to hear Peter's <laughs> hard life and sad times. And so Peter is going to talk to us about Knights of the Air. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Jeffrey. Um, I'm delighted to be here uh, with uh, so many old friends and new friends. We had uh, had a lot of conversations since last night. Uh, and so I want to just thank um, Jeffrey uh, for inviting me. The, um, I, I think you'll forgive me if I change the title from Nights in the Air to something a little more ironic. <laughs> and uh, the way uh, my little... Uh, title that I have written down here is uh, War in the Air, Treasures on the Ground. It was World War I uh, that provided the 20th century with the most enduring images of war. The gleeful celebrations of August 1914, contrasting with the brutal duration of four autumns and four winters, the muck and confinement of the trenches, the staggering losses among the PAL battalions, the heart-wrenching confrontation with death in vividly spare prose, the overpowering sense of loss for years and years, images which taken together nearly overwhelm us. And they have furnished a basically existential idea of war as a dehumanizer of men. The Great War in this familiar rendition turned men and women into victims of history. World War I enabled a thoroughly modernist sensibility in which political idealism and sentimental virtue had come to be regarded as the sites of misfortune. World War I made plausible the suspicion that there are no overarching meanings to breathe life into public virtue and public service. World War I promoted witnesses like Ezra Pound, who sneered when he described the post-war world as an old bitch gone in the teeth, a botched civilization. History with a capital H in this rendition had somehow smashed up, a site of desolation around which swirls the melancholy of foreclosed possibilities. Indeed, nostalgia for what, for the now far-off Belle Epoque became quite keen. And indeed, the years 
before 1914 provide us with the most enduring images of nostalgia. At the same time, historians regard the individual as fundamentally diminished by the war and the subsequent narratives of the war. In the judgment of one historian, gigantic armies and mass systems of uh, conscription and brutal propaganda on the home front virtually completed the Industrial Revolution's construction of anonymous, dehumanized man, the impotent cipher who is frequently thought to be the 20th century's most characteristic citizen, unquote. To be sure, there are other visions of 20th century war, the romantic imagery of the last great cause, the Spanish Civil War, the notion of the good war that keeps startlingly immediate the righteousness of World War II. Nonetheless, World War I set a basic pattern for understanding modern war, one which is essentially retrospective and melancholic, one in which the end result seems hardly worth the sacrifices, and one which tells the story of individuals who die and survive in the face of collective absurdity and bureaucratic inconsideration. The larger political frame is missing from these narratives of World War I, and this seems to hold for even the most famous novels, even of World War II. Um, Catch-22, Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, for example, um, it frames the way we think about the chronicles of bomber crews by Howard Hawks, John Hersey, and Tom Childers, and holds for the balance of uh, Vietnam War films, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now. This all sounds very familiar. The result was, and any textbook will tell you, the age of anxiety, right? The terms of disorientation, the wobbly itinerary of the lost generation of the 1920s and the 1930s. And it's an Anglo-French story that does not hold for Germany. Loss does not tell the whole story. If on the one hand, the human catastrophe of 10 million soldiers dead and the political instabilities of revolution and insurrection and the economic hardships of recession and inflation constituted a fundamental crisis about the validity of European civilization, then also, on the other hand, it's also evident that the ontological crisis, the uncertainty about the actual production of meaning, could be read back, this uncertainty could be read back into politics to open up hitherto unimagined possibilities about the role of elites, the power of the nation state, and the implications of military technologies. In other words, the state of emergency, what is familiarly apostrophized as the age of anxiety. The state of emergencies that historians have usually regarded as perilous, these states also reinserted innovation into the stream of history. The war was not simply a moment of closure, but one of possibility. This was especially the case in Germany, where the sudden outbreak of war was welcomed as a spectacular and essentially charismatic event that promised to undo the arrangements of 19th century history, both at home and abroad. And the memory of World War I and the implications of World War I continued to be read in this way as an essentially charismatic event that reinserts innovation into the stream of history. In Germany, collapse in 1918, what was widely regarded to as the Zusammenbruch, opened up rather than closed down historical possibilities. Let me just give you the theory on this, which is provided by Reinhard Kasselik, who talks about the new knowledge 
that a military defeat can make possible. Historical thought, Kaselik argues, is a mix of extrapolation, which essentially imposes order on events according to broad discernible patterns, and interpolation, which introduces new materials and new perspectives in order to account for surprise. For Kaselik, methodological innovation is the product of interpretive interpolation. To ask the question why events happened in the unexpected way they did, why the German defeat in 1918, is to privilege interpolation over extrapolation. For this reason, Casella concludes, it is the losers rather than the winners who are most likely to introduce innovation into historical narration. Insofar as they reflect on what happened and what has passed, it is the losers who face the more serious scarcity of answers, and it is the losers who search for new causes to explain the occasion of disaster. Without explicitly saying so, Kaselik suggests what the role of history might be, to create and rebuild an active subject. If the surprise of defeat is to be explained at all, and, the, and if the defeated subject is to be reactivated, a new economy of experience needs to be put in place in order to revise ideas that had been taken for granted and to reevaluate notions of contingency, possibility, and necessity. This revisionist labor is the precondition for renewed historical activity. For the winners, by contrast, revisionism is not nearly so urgent because victory privileged the extrapolation of the seemingly self-evident lessons of the historical process and didn't need interpolation to, to uh, account for new and worrisome events. In contrast to the almost obsessive inquest into the state of the new that characterizes Weimar, Germany, cultural production in interwar France and Britain was much more affirmative, conservationist, and even nostalgic, faithful to the idea that the post-war world could be righted back to its pre-war state. But there was little of this faith in Germany, which along with the Soviet Union, was most clearly committed to the discovery of the future. The outbreak, already the outbreak of the war, was greeted in Berlin as marking the exhaustion of the old among the great powers, France and Britain, and the arrival of the young, Germany. A general war promised to dismantle the logic of history. Already August 1914, when Germany mobilized, was widely framed by contemporaries in terms of new time. The so-called ideas of 1914 <clears throat> held that the war would enable Germany to reinvent itself as a more um, satisfying emotional compact, as a more efficient political state, and as a more globally-minded imperial power. The Allies, by contrast, saw the conflict largely in defensive terms as a struggle to protect liberal values, long-held borders, and well-ordered empires. Even in the realm of tactics, by waging a war of attrition, by deploying gas, and by initiating large-scale aerial attacks on cities, the Germans willingly took the initiative in the name of international revolution. And this is the point that Modris Eckstein argues in his point, uh, book, Rights of Spring. The ideas of 1914 were turned into myth by nationalists after the war. 
they became the basis for cultivating loyalty to the nation. Um, and it was the collective experience of 1914, which was reenacted on streets and marketplaces throughout the 1920s. And it was 1914 which Hitler's National Socialists wanted to make the permanent condition of German politics. And it was 1914 which they believed they were seeing on the streets in January 1933. Military defeat did not cancel out, but rather more sharply clarified the potential of popular mobilization and of remorseless sacrifice for the nation. The war set the terms for Germany's renewal by generation mesmerized by the possibility of fundamentally reorienting the nation and rebuilding a collective able to refight the war and overpower Europe. There is no lost generation here. What is it that this generation saw after 1918 that gave it such confidence? For all the immobility of the war, four long years of irresolution, the war in the trenches, the sacrifices, there was also astonishing mobility. The battles beneath the ocean and above the ground or the dramatic movements on the Eastern Front and also the extraordinary mobilization of industry, the carefully choreographed production of civilian morale, and the fantastic rearrangement of collective life by technological design. If the scarred landscape of war was perilous, it was, in German eyes, also magical and resourceful. Ernst Jünger, a leader of the elite shock troops on the German West Front, later an active literary agent of nationalist politics, recalled in the mid-1920s a wonderful June night at near the end of the war. The sky is black and pricked out with a thousand stars. Rifles and helmets clink together in the lorries. The engines sing the wild song of energy and tune our nerves more sharply than any march. Along this road, the assembled power was overwhelming. A fighter plane buzzed overhead. Searchlights, trembling arms, explore the dark vault. Light rockets are discharged one after another, and even machine guns send out swarms of deadly glowworms, unquote. As it was, the airplane, dancing like a pretty butterfly among flamethrowers, eluded the artillery fire. Nonetheless, that spring night, Junger recognized that armies had never been more dangerously, more terribly armed. The war opened up a realm of possibility. As Junger's quite fetching botanical metaphors suggested, military technology had evolved into a second nature, which if rightly discovered, would fundamentally reshape life in post-war Europe. In, the, in his words, a new ardor, a new energy had begun to inspire life. Junger concludes, the men who today are behind the machine guns will be tomorrow in industry, carrying the, their tempo into the markets and the cities, creating the political situation and giving the world a new face. And it was mil military aviators in particular, and Junger is pointing to the sky, who seemed to embody some of the greatest treasures that the World War had revealed. The innovations of a high-tech war which were widely represented by the ACE and by aerial warfare, served as the premises for new kinds of politics, new kinds of 20th century men. Although the ways in which the implications of air war were um, recognized differed from country to country, as I'll explain. To make sense of the traffic between warrior cultures and political cultures, 
let me talk first about the ace and then about his usefulness. The war culture that I'm discussing is not so much a set of identifiable tactics and practices by which airmen define themselves, but rather the tactics and practices which captured public attention and which aroused the political imagination. The ace is one of the war's most well-known figures. To this day, we're more familiar with the names uh, Manfred von Richthofen, Billy Bishop, Eddie uh, Rickenbacker, than we are with the names of World War I generals. Moreover, the ace is closely, most closely associated with World War I. Prophets of war before 1914 never imagined the ace, and the ace did not go on to play as prominent a role in 39-45 as he had in 1914-18. What techniques and technologies built the ace? When European armies went to war in 1914, they envisioned only a subordinate role for the air arm. Only a few far-seeing military theorists recognized the airplane's potential. As the fall campaigns progressed, however, Corps commanders on the Western Front came to rely more and more on aerial reconnaissance. Spotters were crucial in the Battle of the Marne, for example. Airplanes also served usefully uh, as spotters for the artillery. At the same time, a few intrepid pilots packed along bombs to drop on enemy targets. Throughout the fall of 1914, for example, a single German monoplane, dubbed the Five O'Clock Taube, appeared day after day over Paris to scatter a few leaflets or throw a few bombs. Given the rapid deployment of airplanes as reconnaissance scouts, artillery spotters, and bombers, both sides became increasingly concerned with shooting enemy aircraft out of friendly skies. By the beginning of 1915, machine guns were mounted permanently on a new series of more powerful and stable biplanes. But this advance did little to actually bring down enemy aircraft. To get an enemy in his sights, the gunner constantly had to shout abbreviated commands to the pilot, who was usually a lower-ranked non-commissioned officer and merely served as a chauffeur, an arrangement which quickly became cumbersome. Either fighters sacrificed maneuverability to speed, as did the Germans, or speed to maneuverability, as did the Allies, who preferred slower pusher planes, which featured a free-firing machine gun mounted in front of the propeller. A breakthrough came in spring 1915, when the French flyer Roland Garot outfitted his speedy mon monoplane with a specially designed forward-mounted machine gun that shot through the revolving propeller along the axis of flight. In a flash of insight, the manufacturer had calculated that only one in 13 bullets would strike the propeller uh, blades and ricochet away from the target. To keep the wooden blade, uh, the blades from splintering, the manufacturer simply wrapped the edges in steel. The result was a prototype of a specialized fighter plane in the hands of a single pilot who aimed the machine gun by aiming the airplane. A few months later, the Germans developed an interrupting device that synchronized the machine gun to the revolutions of the propeller. Gun and engine had become parts of a single machine. And after a German plane was captured in 1916, the Allies uh, adapted this technology as well. Just one year into the conflict, Combat planes were now no longer slow pushers or shuttering platforms for wild, badly aimed bursts of machine gun fire, but it evolved into missiles of unprecedented and deadly accuracy. 
lighter, more maneuverable one-seaters replaced two-seaters, which greatly enhanced the role of the pilot, who now was more likely to be an officer responsible, responsible for both plane and gun. A single airman entered combat, fought with skill and luck, and if victorious, won the praise of a patriotic culture. A combination of technology and tactics created the ace. It was a design that permitted a new category of strong-armed verbs for which a single man was the active subject. Almost all pilots at this stage, 1915, remark on the sensation of power. I fired 300 rounds. Then I suddenly saw. I could hardly believe my eyes. The enemy flyer threw up both his arms. His crash helmet fell down and went down in wide circles, and a moment later his machine gun plunged downward from a height of 7,000 feet. A pillar of dust showed where he'd hit the ground. Each detail, hands thrown up, helmet falling down, dust rising, enhanced the obliteration of men and machines that the ace had accomplished. The startling vulnerability of enemy machinery corresponds to the enchanting, newly discovered potentials of the machine man in the air. Let's follow him up. If you imagine the one-seater as a flying gun, it becomes clear that the trick is uh, that the trick to its best use is to stay somewhat behind the enemy, putting him in your line of fire and staying clear of his. The element now plays an important role. We played hide-and-seek with the enemy in and around large cloud formations in an otherwise clear sky, remembered one veteran. If reconnaissance flyers had despised ground cover, fighter pilots fighter pilots saw clouds as friendly pads or formations or veils to hide behind. Even more important was the tactical ability to evade a pursuer or to follow an, uh, or follow an evader. It was this, this, it was this uh, engagement that the best uh, flyers, pilots like um, Germany's Max Immelmann or Oswald Bölke, tried, um, tried out the basic maneuvers of aerial dueling diving, escaping, slide-slipping, and recovering. The novice pilot, uh, Cecil Lewis, had the opportunity to practice with the number two French ace. His little spot was smaller and more maneuverable than mine. He had the better climb and could turn in a smaller circle. The result was that he just sat right on my tail in a slightly smaller circle so that he always kept his sights on me. Had I been an enemy, I should have been dead five times in the first minute. Do what I would, spin, half roll, dive, climb. There, he just sat as if he'd been being towed behind me. Aerial combat frequently turned into a classic duel between two pilots who circled, looped, and climbed around each other. Richthofen described a dramatic confrontation with the British ace, Lana Hawker. It did not take long before one dove for me, trying to catch me from behind, after a sharp burst of five shots, the, the sky fellow had to stop, for I was already in a sharp left curve. The Englishman attempted to get behind me while I attempted to get behind him. And so it went, both of us flying like madmen in a circle, with engines running out full out at 3,000 meter altitude, first left, then right, each intent on getting above and behind the other. He had a very maneuverable crate, but mine climbed better, and I finally succeeded in coming in above and behind him. In the end, Richthofen forced Hawker down to his death 50 meters behind German lines. Hawker and Richthofen, and before them, Immelmann and Bölken, flew as many missions as possible, and soon they had tallied the five kills um, necessary to be designated an ace. The best fighters managed 
20, 30, or more kills, earning them coveted medals from the generals and lavish adulation from the public. The single weapon, the plane with its forward-firing gun, and the solitary warrior, the pilot is gunner, recalled the honorable protocols of the duel and the older chivalric traditions of medieval knights. Uh, that's the familiar story. That a fair number of flyers were aristocrats, Richthofen, for example, only enhanced these associations. And to this day, the fighter pilot as knight remains a highly evocative image. Jeffrey's title for my talk. What made the image of the ace so compelling were the strangely self-absorbed rituals that purportedly surrounded the aerial contests. Battle reports suggested that sportsmanship and honor did guide the conduct of aerial duelists. In the air, it was man against man, wrote one, with equal weapons and equal chances. Uh, one pilot looked forward to fencing with a fair Englishman. We still had the honor honorable combat of man against man that stood out like a thing of another age amid the din and shock of mass warfare, recalled another veteran flyer in 1932. According to these honorable terms of engagements, uh, the chivalrous flyer did not fire his gun gratuitously and even broke off contact so as not to take advantage of defective guns or engine trouble of his opponent. When enemy pilots, men just like us, who had been given a double portion of vitality and zest, when enemy pilots were brought down behind friendly lines, they were frequently entertained by the squadron as honorable foes and treated like regimental buddies. The fight is over, wrote one. We're pleased to meet these old acquaintances in the flesh. A final scene often closes contemporary accounts of aerial battle. On a number of occasions, squadrons dropped wreaths to honor fallen aces, uh, the British did so at Belka's uh, memorial service, for example. Or they delivered letters to provide information on those men who were missing and captured. One story made the rounds among German copywriters. Papers on the bodies of two French pilots made provisions for their eventual death. They asked the Germans to give them a Catholic funeral and to inform their relatives requests which were honored. Several days later, a French pilot circled overhead and dropped a bouquet of roses. Communication between antagonists persisted even after the war. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, former aces embellished the myth of chivalrous combat. A vague international of fighter pilots emerged. In November 1925, when Richthofen's body was returned to Germany, two Allied lieutenants, one from the U.S. Army Aviation Corps, the other a Canadian flyer, carried a large floral airplane propeller to the casket which lay in state in Berlin's cathedral. Six years later, British Captain Leeson visited Dresden to pay homage to his former conqueror, Max Immelmann. As late as 1937, French Air Minister Pierre Cotte uh, pinned a medal on Ernst Dudet, the former ace, and at the time, chief of the Luftwaffe's technical department. In the years before the Second World War, airmen played curious parts in international politics. Think of Lindbergh. Um, their memorials and medals to one another indicating that Germany had been an honorable foe during the war and should be treated as such in the aftermath. These stories of honor among airmen took a life of their own, took on a life of their own, and appeared again and again in contemporary accounts. What this circulation indicates is both the role of the mass media 
and the military in promoting the image of aces. Although the French and the British at first had some qualms about singling out an individual for praise lest it detract from the collective effort of the nation under arms, the ace was attractive for being instantly recognizable. His victories were uncontested and unequivocal. His foes clearly smashed. Um, He thus served to embody the national will to victory. To war correspondents and feature writers, each kill reaffirmed the ace's invincibility and by extension the nation's. Given this need uh, to maintain morale and to raise funds throughout the war, the glamour of the ace had immense propaganda value. Richthofen alone was worth three divisions, uh, quipped Ludendorff. Now, this portrayal of the aces is relatively familiar to us, and it is in large part wrong. In the first place, the majority of flyers in World War I were not fighters, but spotters, in addition to bombardiers and strafers. Moreover, fighters tended to pick on vulnerable planes. They were bullies, heavy bombers or less maneuverable observation planes. Once fighter pilots had arranged themselves into squadrons, it was increasingly rare for a duel between equals to take place. This is really fall 1916 when these duels take place, um, but much more rarely thereafter. By late 1916, the discipline and tactics of the group worked against the daredevil tree of the solo pilot. It is an irony that the aces who had been built up uh, by a mystique of aerial war, which almost amounted to religion, soon became anachronisms as air warfare left the mystical phase and entered the phase of numbers and scientific method. Formation flying was born out of the successes of the early aces, um, mutual protection to counteract their prowess. The great squadron theorist, Richthofen, for example, made it clear that the Germans would only attack with superiority in numbers and height. Otherwise, German squadrons waited, stacked up in the sky at 10,000 or 20,000 feet, waiting for vulnerable two-seaters or for a stray pilot who was unable to keep up with his squadron or whose engine had stalled or gun had jammed. Most of Richthofen's 80 kills, for example, were two-seaters. The French pilot uh, Jean Morvan uh, demystified aerial combat. It was more like an ambush than a duel, he observed. One rarely swoops down on an adversary who can maneuver. Rather, one assassinates a promenader out for a daydream, approached from behind, unsuspected, and as close as possible, then fire 40 or 50 rounds in four or five seconds. The American ace, Eddie Rickenbacker, who flew only in formation, agreed. Fighting in the air is not a sport, he wrote, It is scientific murder. The opening lines uh, of Floyd Gibbons' biography of Richthofen make clear just how little air war resemble sport. To kill and kill and kill was the cry. To burn, to destroy, to devastate, to lay waste, unquote. And the most effective way to destroy an opponent was to aim for the fuel tanks, which in two-seaters carried up to 300 liters of highly flammable fuel. A fuel leak released a cloud of white vapor, which tracers or incendiary bullets easily ignited or splashed fuel directly on the hot engine, which caught fire in front of the pilot's face. Headwinds fanned the flames toward the pilot and quickly engulfed the entire plane. Even when the pilot managed to shut off the engine, a fire once started was almost impossible to contain 
and ended in the pilot's gruesome death. Many preferred to jump to their deaths than be roasted alive. The first image of an opponent burning to death uh, stayed with an ace for a long time. Bölke described the incident, uh, an incident in his revealing field report of March 1916. Since I came at an angle above him and pressed hard, I had caught up with the enemy machine in a few seconds. Just as I wanted to bank over the enemy, I saw him explode. I still got some black smoke in my face. It was not a battle, but a rapid fire shooting down. The drama of seeing this enemy plane break apart in flames and falling like a torch was very gruesome. For Belka's student Richthofen, burning was the best way to ensure the destruction of the enemy. On the 30th of September 1916, Richthofen reported, I shot down my third Englishman. He plunged down in frames, flames. One heart, one's heart beats faster if the opponent, whose face one has just seen, plunges burning from 4,000 meters. Richthofen soon became obsessed. As soon as he landed, he always inquired whether his kills had gone down in flames, uh, and he took care to note, burned in his reports. In the end, 54 of Richthofen's 80 victories were burns. As squadron leader, he encouraged his pilots to ignite their opponents as well. Richthofen also disdained any gestures of chivalry on the ground. For example, he did not speak to his opponents who survived their crashes. Air war was stark and pitiless in its post-1916 economy. Destruction of the opponent's machine was the point of aerial combat. And Rangen, to go at it, to burn, the most, was the most efficient means to that end. In the hands of technicians like Volk and Richthofen, there was little left of the loops and turns that made the first aces famous. Even on the ground, airmen lived and breathed the relentless uh, spirit of destruction. Men turned the ghastly images of air war over in their minds again and again. They had nightmares and screamed and muttered in their sleep. In the weeks before he died, shooting down one Englishman after the other over the Somme, Bölke thought constantly about his own death. Would it be, as he says in dialect, frecht oder getrocknet? Would it be wet or dry? That is, would he be crushed or burned to death? Most pilots found coming under fire terrifying. Ernst Udet's friend, Guntermann, talked constantly about the death that was so visible and prevalent. We walked along the loose gravel path leading through the park to the castle. A small white garden table stood close by us. Guntermann halted and picked up a leaf, a handful of pebbles. Placing the leaf on the table, he opened the palm of his hand and slowly released the stones. As each fell, there was a sharp metallic sound as the, pe as the pebbles hit the tabletop. It's like this, Udet, he said. The bullets fall around us, he pointed to the leaf, and gradually they get nearer and nearer, and finally they hit us. We're bound to get hit in time. The sharp metallic sound of the pebbles hitting the table deeply unsettled Udet. Guntermann later died. But even for those who survived, the physical and emotional strain of flying was revealing. Photographs of flyers in 1917 and 1918 show gaunt faces and thin bodies. Up to five pounds of weight was sweated out on a single flight. Not surprisingly, most pilots happily distinguished between Fliegerwetter, flyers' weather, and Flugwetter, flying weather. 
a Royal Flying Corps ditty, put it this way. I left the mess room early before the break of dawn, and greatly to my horror, the weather promised fair. Obviously, there was an exhilaration to flying. My point, however, is that the solo ace and the aerial duel was, were not the key elements of an identifiable warrior culture, which by the time tactics were worked out for the squadron, in which almost all pilots, pi- fighter pilots were placed after 1916, it stressed the destruction of the enemy, encouraged gunning down any vulnerable plane, it prized teamwork and subordination, and disdained dangerous aerial uh, acrobatics. Given the realities of formation flying, the idea of flying alone, firing only necessary shots, and engaging one-seaters man-to-man in a contest of equals was as quaint as it is misleading. But it's not, simply inter- it's not interesting simply to puncture myths about aerial combat. What I think is far more interesting is to explore how and why various notions about air war circulated and how they contributed to notions of modern war and war preparation. At the risk of simplifying national differences, I would like to outline the circulation of these myths. While the romantic idea of the ace can be found among all of the belligerents, it was particularly strong in the United States, France, and to some extent Great Britain. It was the American journalist Floyd Gibbons who wrote the first biography of Richthofen in 27. And while a British biography followed in 1934, a German one on Richthofen didn't appear until 1938. At the same time, one Englishman, Claude Sykes, single-handedly translated a dozen German aviation memoirs and biographies. (coughs) The Americans also fastened onto the image of the um, heroic ace in the 1927 smash hit Wings. Again and again, the combat pilot was portrayed as a heroic knight who is endowed with courage and daring and flies a fragile machine against overwhelming odds. While the machine fades into the background, the individual as active subject endures. Ten years after the war, Lindbergh was celebrated in much the same way. It's true, Lindbergh's account of his transatlantic flight is entitled We and extols the bond between man and machine. But the public saw the individual virtue as triumphing against nature's anarchy. It is not difficult to make sense of this melodramatic narrative of the war among the Allies. While technology obviously exists, it does not trouble the relations among men who remain full-bodied in their movements and their abilities. Technology permits a charismatic re-enchantment of muscular heroism without producing new terms that must be understood and met, and thus without really endangering ideas of the nature and its future. As Leo Marx would put it in his brilliant essay on the machine in the garden, the machine is inserted into an American pastoral ideal that is favored by history. Germany, by contrast, had a much more adventurous and troubled relationship to aviation. What fascinated many observers was precisely the harsh economy of air war. Air men were modern-day explorers of a new world of danger and destruction. This new world cultivated a new man who was hardened, who was made pitiless in battle, in order to meet the challenges of the new century. Combat aces, according to one veteran, constituted a new elite. They learned how to fight in a way that was unheard of and to die in a way that was unheard of. 
he immediately, uh, he unmistakably linked the singular requirements of air war, its stern ethic of destruction, to the formation of an elite group. A process of selection was at work. Only those with unspent nerves and dauntless hearts would flourish. Because, bru- because gruesome, because ruthless, air war disciplined and molded a new warrior. And it is no surprise that it was Hermann Goering, rather than the greatest living German ace, Ernst Dudet, who was given command of Richthofen's squadron after his 1918 death. Udet upheld a more idiosyncratic and chivalrous notion of flying. He talked humanely about the enemy, and it admitted his own vulnerabilities, and he romped through the 1920s and 30s as a playboy. Goering, by contrast, was a team player who regarded formation flying as a model of discipline and subordination that the Nazis later believed a strong-armed Germany required. This Nazi-era retrospective was anticipated by commentators during the war itself. It wasn't the French who searched out German cities, boasted retired Captain Hans Hillebrand in the popular Leipzig Weekly in 1917. Rather, it had been German planes that flew over Paris and plagued the English coast already at the very beginning of the war. There was no reason to apologize for this true German offensive spirit. On the contrary, to fight the war as if it were a chivalrous engagement or a sporting event deserved the nation. German aces flew to kill, to destroy enemy scouts, he writes, to blind the eyes of the Allies. Seen in this light, and this is a discourse, obviously, that we see in the 1930s and early 40s, but it has its origins in 1917 and 1918. Seen in this light, the aviator remains a hero, but of a kind that had not been seen before. His self-reliance and ability to see and move set the airmen apart from the infantrymen. But his technical competence, discipline, and often middle-class background also distinguished him from the Napoleonic cavalrymen or bygone chevaliers. According to Ernst Jünger, the airman was perhaps the best representative of what he called a new and commanding breed whom the war had fashioned, fearsome and fabulous, a race that builds machines and trusts machines, unquote. Jünger was of two minds about aviators. On the one hand, he lauded aristocratic virtues that the war had seemed to preserve, that air war seemed to preserve. Only in the air, he pointed out from the ground, was a duel still possible, and only in the air did virtues of honor and respect among uh, warriors still prevail. And here, Jünger adopts the wholesale legend of the ace. Uh, and, and Jünger imagines victorious pilots leaving, to the, leaving their machines to the mechanics and throwing themselves into easy, chair, easy chairs, having breakfast and reading the papers. Yet Jünger also recognized in the aces the sons, and, uh, the sons of workers. Many pilots had been reared, he writes, in the centers of modern industry. Their faces have the imprint of hard fact. The ardor of speed, the tempo of the manufactory, the poetry of steel and reinforced concrete have been the natural surroundings of their childhood. They are thoroughly accustomed to the enhancement of life by machine, unquote. In the end, Jünger dresses up this ideal in overalls and a leather cap. Indeed, Jünger was not wrong uh, to identify a new sociology of warriors. By the end of the war, the most successful pilots were middle-class Germans who had been promoted thanks to experience and expertise, 
Böcke and Immelmann were middle-class boys who had long been fascinated with machines and motors. Um, and in the, in, even in the Royal Flying Corps, it was Dominion boys from Canada and Australia described a strange, a strange rough crowd with a wild, keen spirit who outperformed their English counterparts. Canadian pilots had the lion's share of killings. Bishop, 72, uh, Collishaw, 60, Parker, 59, and so on. Even in death, so Junger's argument is that this is a, a middle class rather than aristocratic formation. It's one suited to the world of machines and cities that German renewal must master. Even in death, German airmen retained the grim steel character of the technical age. News of Richthofen's death in April 1918 prompted none of the sentimental prose that uh, accompanied the death of Immelmann or Bolke two years earlier. It was a, yet another sign of the harsh order of things, as one sober report put it. Richthofen, who, by the way, died wearing mechanics overalls, was compared to a high-performance killing machine who was finally overcharged. You tighten a piece of wire, explained the Norddeutsche Allgemeine Zeitung. You tighten a piece of wire, tighter and tighter, more and more, and even more, and you believe you can increase the tension by just a little bit until, yes, until it snaps, unquote. The requirement of disciplining the body, these requirements were frightening until it snaps, but denoted an iron fulfillment of duty, hard, steel-hard duty. The notion of the night of the skies never faded, but the new image of the machine man gained, prom gained prominence. With iron nerves, steady eyes, and quick decisiveness, accomplished flyers were a study in the sacrifices the total mobilization seemed to require. By the end of the war, airmen were imagined as stealing and training their nerves, making them invulnerable like the best industrial metal, and thereby cultivating the ruthlessness and discipline they needed in combat and that Germany itself required to wage a successful Darwinian contest for survival. In this sense, air war suggested a category of danger and discipline that served Germany as a premise for political renovation. In Germany, aces fa fascinated because they adhered to the harsh injunction of modern war by which Germany might gain advantage, where in the United States, aces re-enchanted a seemingly routinized and bureaucrat bureaucratic world. And by the same token, the prospect of long-range bombing was regarded in proximate and terrifying terms in Germany and soon provided technological justifications for authoritarian rule, which would discipline the civilian population, and the militarization of civilians. Whereas in the United States, the long-range bomber force was imagined as a great shield, an early version of Star Wars, to protect um, the political state of the nation, rather than to change it. In both cases, in Germany and the United States, a high-tech warrior culture offered political prospects and personal treasures. But it was Germany that identified itself most closely with what it considered to be the unprecedented possibilities that war had, uh, had generated, which was the new economy of danger. And indeed, the Germans had built already in World War I 200 Zeppelins to bomb British working-class districts uh, and destroy factories as well as morale during World War I. One, these wide-ranging experiences were collected as the answers 
to the question of the future after Germany's defeat in 1918 as evidence for the possibility of innovation. They enabled military theorists, even after the shock of defeat in 1918, to think in the future tense. Germany made the most of and believed it necessary to adhere to the demands of a technological new world regarding the violence and jeopardy of war as terms of national renovation and founding this newly revealed future on the diagnosis of danger and on the therapy of discipline. Precisely because even the most dangerous aspects of the war were associated with collective possibilities, the experience of war was cultivated in an extraordinary paramilitarization of public life in the 1920s and 30s, for which there are no counterparts in France or Britain. It was on the basis of discipline, national feeling, and pitilessness that Germany's post-war generation, the so-called unconditional generation, found itself and prepared the extraordinary and audacious terms of the next war. War itself had become the premise of thought. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, so if there are questions, I'd be happy uh, to answer them. You commented that World War I, the aces were, I guess, more highly thought of than World War II. Yes. I, want, I question that because Galan talked about coming back to Germany being treated like a rock star, you know, people coming out to see him, autographs. U.S. aces, Jill Fox, for instance, were brought back for Bond Drive, for big heroes. They were treated as big heroes. Did, uh, Well, um, my point is not to say that there was no adulation of the ace in World War II, but that the cult of celebrity that surrounded the single dueling ace in 1916 um, in Germany, for example, with Boca and uh, Immelmann and even their British counterparts um, doesn't find uh, a counterpart in World War II. So everything you say is right, but I think relative to World War I, I would, I would still argue that the ace has a less prominent role in popular culture. I mean, your examples notwithstanding. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, I also, you know, I'm relying on the secondary evidence. It's just the, the German ace, it certainly works for Germany. And the Nazis really did not create cult of personalities around individual uh, soldiers. Well, there's street names, for example. Um, there's all sorts of kitsch that's created um, there. Uh, and, then, and then there's this pile of textual evidence. Um, leaflets, short stories, uh, commemorations in, in, in the print media that begins in World War I. Uh, these are massive print runs, say the biography of, of Richthofen that's put out in 1918 as a, as a press run of 400,000. And this continues uh, with the example, say, of this, this British translator. Um, but there are, yeah, there are monuments uh, and street names to come to mind immediately. John.
that, in a sense, the Japanese conceived of their fighters as a sword, that it was highly mobile, that was slower, um, but it was marvelously built for the dogfight. And, and Americans conceived of their planes as fighting, as flying machine guns, which were big, heavy, and overpowered, and, uh, and, and it was their style of, of air combat that eventually won out. But there was a combination of perhaps Japanese values and experience in China that, that, that crafted the zero and No, but I think the um, I think the appeal of using the ace and the duel and honor and the individual in 1916 is immense because unproblematically you can create a symbol for the triumphant nation, and it's precisely because its appeal it's so appealing and so useful it will be exported and transported wherever possible. What the Germans added to that, though, without you know completely diminishing it was um, a warrior culture that stresses the group, that stresses subordination, and stresses a, a kind of a ruthlessness against the enemy, a lack, a self-conscious lack of morality, which is precisely what the SS and even the Wehrmacht um, directives put out to their, to their individual soldiers. Precisely because of the sense of racial feeling, it was necessary to readjust universal morals and make them consonant with German superiority. And that's exactly where this pitilessness comes in. So, of course, there's romanticization of individual soldiers, and the Wehrmacht constantly slips into that traditional view. But on top of that, there is another view that gains increasing uh, legitimacy, and it comes out um, after 1941, but it's also coming out in 1917 and 1918. And it's coming out even in popular celebration. So that Richthofen is understood in terms of um, the squadron and not as Bolko was in terms of being an individual. So you have this, this new element, and that's that the measure of that difference is precisely Germany's movement towards uh, interpolation, of injecting new ways that you might have to fight this 20th century war. It's a, what it basically is, it's a search for new ways. P uh, they're experimenting in the media, in tactics, in theory, with um, new ways of fighting, uh, circling around these, uh, these words of discipline, subordination, and, and mercilessness without completely uh, casting off uh, more traditional notions. Um, I, th I think they did, but I don't think it was in terms of redemption. Uh, I think it was in terms of uh, the, the imagery of black and white and of, of impending apocalypse. Um, and so very stark uh, Manichaean language in which you either will prevail or, or, or be destroyed. And um, I mean that, that's, that's what comes to mind in terms of uh, the use of religion. Yes? 
in a lot of the German literature, particularly uh, uh, Junger, there's sort of the, the war is this uh, existential fusion of man and machine, and that, that, that it's really the, the, the arrival of industrialized man. But at the same time, a lot of the language, uh, the ace of their claims are very fragile terms, you know, it's like great, uh, and, uh, and it's daring, you know, enough just to go up in something that fragile. Is it, in this man and, in this fusion of man and machine, Well, yeah, I mean, I think you, you, the, the discrepancy that you map out is the discrepancy of Junger safely on the ground looking up and many of the uh, much more ironic and, and, and um, unsentimental uh, reports of, of the aces who have to actually fly and, and come back down. In Junger's, um, and the idea of the frailty of, the muse, of, of technology is in Junger, because one of the things that Junger stresses, particularly in his book De Arbeit, De the Worker, is the need for constant adjustment, battle readiness, adaptability, so that whoever's in charge has to, has to deal with um, uh, changing circumstances and imperfect circumstances and, and do that very quickly. And that's the quick nerves, the quick decisiveness that Junger's talking about. So in, the, in that sense, he implies an imperfect machine. And that um, demands all the more from men. In the end, I guess it's men who are superior because uh, only very few will be able to, um, uh, to master the machine and to be tempered by the machine and to be forced into this position of constant battle readiness. But there, but there will be a few, and, they, and those, those are the new men of the 20th century. And their survival is worth all the other deaths. Un, not well. Um, I think this is by far has the highest mortality uh, rates. I don't know the exact figures. Uh, the figure that seems to stay in my mind is 40%. Um, and uh, just thinking, let's say, of the British Air Force in World War II, just huge, huge casualty figures that are completely out of proportion with what was accomplished just a couple of weeks ago. There was another article in the New York Review of Books by by a veteran uh, analyst of the time, I'm forgetting his name, um, who was just stunned by the mismatch between sacrifice and, and what, was, what was accomplished. And I'm, the Germans built 200 Zeppelins. Most of those didn't survive. Most of those crews didn't survive. They were shot down from 25,000 feet. They, it was totally cold. Um, 200 Zeppelins in order to kill 1,000 civilians. I mean, just complete mismatch. But, but the audacity is there, the belief that there are new dimensions which we can now only imperfectly deal with, but in a generation which will provide us the terrain on which Germany will prevail is a constant. Or beginning in 1914 and just, just getting even bigger uh, through the 1920s and 30s as Germans work through the defeat because they are not the lost generation. They think they have found the answers. They were wrong, but, they, but not without millions of deaths. Yeah. My question really has to do with World War II. Herman Goering, we all know, he cast his lot with Hitler for a variety of reasons. The one man that I found recently, just looking over this material, 
Well, the, the, uh, all the Nazis have to become opportunists uh, after 1945 if you're going to survive. Um, and uh, the stories of what they said they did before 1945 and what they did before 1945 are very different. And after 1945, the press to say, oh, you know, I, I was an opportunist or I'm just, you know, a flyboy or... You know, I did what I was told, or I had technical expertise, and this is what we did, and we were fighting the Russians, so of course I shot down the planes. Um, is very different from how they would have uh, described themselves um, before 1945. Yeah, so clearly there's lots of opportunism. Interesting that he didn't take the deal, though, um, and, and suffered another, whatever, 10 years uh, in prison. A new theory of Homeric warfare. Uh, I'd like to thank Peter Fritchie for coming, and as always, well, thanks. I'm going to expect entertaining and stimulating us. Uh, members of the seminar, please remain. We'll need to change the tables around. But Peter, thank you so much for very stimulating. Well, you're welcome. <laughs>